morning. Good to see all your bright, shining faces here today. We'll get going. Hallelujah. Whoo. <laughs> Holy Spirit, we just take a moment. We just take a moment. We open our hearts to receive from you. We thank you, Lord, for your word that, Holy Spirit, you inspired. And we thank you that it divides between what are our thoughts and what are your thoughts. And so right now, Holy Spirit, we ask for wisdom and revelation knowledge. As Paul prayed for the Ephesians, he said that the Lord might give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation into the knowledge of you, God. That they would know what is the hope of their calling, what was the riches of the glory of your inheritance that is in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of your power towards those who believe. And so, Father, as we continue on our series today on faith, we thank you, Lord, we are believers and so we ask that you reveal deeper the callings that you've called us to, the inheritance that you've set aside for us, and the greatness of your power that is already flowing to us and through us as those who are believers. And so we just say thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to continue, as I just said, we're going to continue on our series that we diverted back to last week, and that is our series on faith. Because we've been saying that the Bible says the just live by faith. We don't have experiences with faith. We live by it. It's a day-to-day thing that we take God at his word, not just that he is there. Because that's what faith means to most people. Oh, you're a person of faith. That means you believe in a God or you believe in the God. But that's not what faith is in its entirety. Faith is taking God at his word That I am what he says I am, I have what he says I have, and I can do what he says I can do. As Hebrews 11.6 says, it says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to him must first believe that he is. And that's where most people stay. But the second part says, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so faith is not just about, oh, I believe God exists and I believe he sent Jesus. No, it's also the second side of it is, I believe that he's given what he said he gave. And that who he made me to be in Christ Jesus is who I actually am. And so faith, this series has been woven all throughout 2023, and we're going to spend a little more focus time on it in this fall season. Last week, we said, out of Romans chapter 10, we said, what does faith sound like? That's what Paul asked in Romans 10. He said, what does faith sound like? And he said, here's what it doesn't sound like. He started with what doesn't, it isn't. He says, it's not saying I'm going to go up to heaven as to bring God down, or I'm going to descend down into hell as to bring him up from the grave. It does not sound like making God do anything. That is not faith. You don't have to force God's hand to do anything. Faith, it says, this is what faith sounds like. It says the word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That's Romans chapter 10 if you want to go back and take a look at that again. So faith is not making God do anything. Faith simply believes what he said he's already done. Hallelujah. And so that's where we're jumping off from today. Faith doesn't command God. Faith believes God. 
and you don't have, if you're feeling like, God, why haven't you done X, Y, Z, or whatever it is, that's the wrong mentality. That's not faith. Faith looks into the Word, it sees what the Word says I have and that I am, and it aligns its words, its thoughts, and its actions with that. Faith is birthed in a heart that responds to the authoritative word of God. And so whenever you see it in the word, faith response should rise up. If there's no response to your faith, go back to the word. Because faith is birthed in a heart that responds to the authoritative word of God. Romans 10, 17. And so when we think about what can faith do for you, faith can do nothing other than believe God. And with God, we know in, in uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter. And he was, uh, there's a lot of teaching out there that says, oh, the, the eye of the needle was this nighttime gate where you'd come with your camel, and it was too small for the camel to fit through, loaded, so you'd have to unload your possessions, bring the camel through, and then walk them through. And it's basically, it's a picture of having to unload yourself of everything in order to come into the kingdom. And that's a true mentality. You bring nothing to the table, but that's not what he was saying here. There was no nighttime gate that they've ever found in any plan of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And so that's not what he's talking about. He's literally saying, you got a little needle? Can you fit a camel through that? You may not be able to, but God can do whatever he wants. And so here Peter says, then who can be saved? And Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that's great. That's an awesome perspective. There is nothing that is impossible for God. But Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And so nothing is impossible for God. And when you place your faith in him, the things that he's called to you, called you to become possible, even while they remain impossible for the kingdom of men. Didn't we say last week in uh, Colossians, it says, as you have begun in Christ Jesus, or as you stepped in at salvation, it says, so continue in, being rooted and built up in faith. Being rooted, and we said that the further roots spread out and go down, it allows things to go bigger above the surface. And so many people are looking at the aspects of their life and feeling small. Well, go ahead and root yourself down in faith so that it can support more above the surface, right? But then the next verse says, beware of those who would bewitch you with earthly philosophy or worldly philosophy being stuck to the minimal things of the world. The basic principles of men is how Paul said it. And so there's things that naturally you will look at and say, that is impossible. And God says, watch me. It is impossible to walk on water, but Jesus and Peter did it. It is impossible to multiply loaves and fishes without baking more bread and catching more fish, but yet Jesus did it, and the second time, he told the disciples to do it. He said, you feed them. Why? Because you've already seen me do it the first time, and you know what to do. And so there's things that are impossible to men, 
that God said, you are, you have, and this is what you can do. You need to let go of the natural limitations and go with God. Now, let's just say, that's not that you go out and you do stupid things. You go, oh, Jesus walked on water. Maybe I can walk on air and jump off the side of a building. You will die. You will meet Jesus face to face, and he'll go, what were you thinking? Come on. But you follow the unction of the Holy Spirit and where he leads you, and when that word of the Lord rises up on the inside of you, you step out and go. Even though your natural mind go like, that's not possible. And so we're talking about faith. And here's where we ended off last week, because I, I want to do some simple teaching today, some slower teaching. I do a lot of preaching, and, and we get excited and we go, but sometimes you just got to do what we just said. Let the roots go down deep. And the further you make the foundation, the higher you can go. And so last week we ended here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. And Paul said, he's quoting Jesus, he said, In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus' blood signed the new covenant. And so where I want to start today, where I said last week, it's one thing to say you can believe, but you also need to know what the Bible said about certain topics so you can place your faith in it. You need to understand what the, Lord, the word of the Lord said about health in your body. You need to understand what God said about your finances and prospering you. You need to understand what the Lord has said about opportunities that lie before you. And they all start with understanding the covenant that you stand in. Amen? If you don't understand the, the agreement you have with God, you will never walk in it. And so I figured, you know, we need a graphic of uh, talking about faith in the new covenant. And so I went to my usual program that I use to do creative stuff and everything, and there was a new feature. This is just a little sidebar that I thought was humorous. There's a new feature of AI where they're like, hey, you, you got, a, got something in mind? Type in some words, and we'll go ahead and create the graphics for you. So I put faith in the new covenant, and I put it in, and the pictures that they brought back were very religious. It was like little angels with little wings and naked little cherubs. And I was like, well, that's not what I was looking for. But then I noticed there was a little, another little button, and it said, it said, do you want us to create a presentation for you? based on those words. And I was like, hey, might as well figure it, try it out. And so I clicked the button, and it popped this up, and it gave me a 10-point presentation on what faith in the new covenant means. And I'm not going to go all 10 points, but I thought it was interesting because AI was able to give me a clearer perspective of what faith in the new covenant means than most Christians are able to, me to do. And so the, fir the first point that AI spit out was awesome. It said, the new covenant is not about what we can do for God, but what God has already done for us through Christ Jesus. That's the new covenant. It's not about you having to fulfill all the obligations. No, it's you understanding what Jesus has fulfilled for you and stepping into it by faith. We said last week that when we talk about faith, faith is based on the finished work of Jesus. It's not about making God do something. It's what did he say is done. His last words were, it is finished. 
meaning I did something. You need to know what he did. And so the new covenant's not about what we can do for God. It's about what he's already done for us through Christ Jesus. And when you see what he's done, it changes how you act. Religion will say, change how you act so that you can be. Jesus said, this is how you are, and it'll cause that to flow. Right believing begets right living, not the other way around. Change what you believe based upon the word of God. The third point it threw out, I didn't do all ten points, but it said understanding the new covenant, and I, I realize it's a little small, but I didn't make it, uh, AI did. It says the new covenant is a promise of salvation through faith in Christ, and it is finalized by the cross and commemorated through the Holy Communion. The New Covenant is finalized by the cross, and we do this in remembrance. When I look at the blood, I remember what you've done for me, Lord. I stand in, in your presence, forgiven and accepted, declared righteous because of your blood. That's what I remember. I re the, the blood did a work, and the body did a work. And we'll get into that in later weeks, the difference between what the blood did and what the body did. But the last point that they threw out was this. With faith, we can trust that the promises of the new covenant will be fulfilled even when we cannot see them yet. Because Thomas' faith says, I'll believe when I see. Jesus said, blessed are those who have believed and haven't seen yet. And so faith, even when it hasn't been fulfilled, it considers it done. Hallelujah. And I was just like, man, AI saw it clearer than most Christians do. <laughs> That's great. So, but we're talking about the new covenant this morning. That was just a sidebar that I thought was pretty interesting. We're talking about the new covenant because Hebrews tells us that we, by now, but now, not by now, but now, he, meaning talking about Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So the first thing I want you to realize is that if this is the cup of the new covenant, that there was an old covenant. And if you look at the promises of the old covenant, which we'll probably do next week, the promises of the new covenant are better. That's what he said, right? It's a better covenant on better promises. And so if you thought the old was good, the new is better. What you stand in is better than all of those Old Testament prophets that we read their stories, we hear their miracles, and we go, oh, that was so awesome. Oh, but that's not for us today. No, it's better for us today. We can stand in better things. You know, we can read those stories, get excited, and say, well, if they could do that under the old, how much more in the new? But I think a good place to start this morning is, what is a covenant? It's a good question to ask. What, is, what does he mean when he says this is the new covenant? Well, the word that's used here, diatheke, means a disposition, an arrangement of any sort which one wishes to be valid. So let's just start with the first part. He says it's a disposition or an arrangement. I don't like when a definition of a word 
uses a word that then requires a definition, but it did. What is a disposition? <laughs> is anybody else curious when you read stuff like that? A disposition, obviously we know, oh, you've just got such a sunny disposition. That's not what he's talking about. The definition of a disposition is the way in which something is placed or arranged in relation to other things. A disposition is the way in which something is arranged in relation to other things. Do you know what the disposition of the new covenant is? It's how you've been arranged in relation to Jesus Christ. Where you stand in relation to him. More importantly, it's not where you stand, it's actually where you sit. Come on. Paul said that Jesus has been raised up and he sat down at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. Far above all principality, all powers, all might, all dominion, and every name that is named. Not only in this world, but that which is to come. It says he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. If Jesus is the head and the church is the body, do they sit in different places? It's a question. No. Your head didn't walk in this door and your body didn't walk in that door, and Jesus is not a freak like that either. He said he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and everything is below his feet. What are you facing? It's below your feet. Because Paul said in the next chapter, he has raised us up and made us to sit together with him in heavenly places, so that in the ages to come, he might show unto you the riches of his kindness and grace. And so the disposition, the understanding of this covenant is understanding where you've been placed in relation to him, and that is you're with him. You are in Christ Jesus. That's why it's so important that I love this little book. Because in this book, there's, I believe it's 153 different scriptures that are listed here in the back for your benefit that talk about who you are in Christ. Now, a lot of people spend their time talking about who they are in this world, whether they're successful or unsuccessful, whether they're happy, whether they're miserable, whether they're having a good day or a bad day, but they spend not very much time talking about who they are in Christ or who they are in Him, or who they are in the Beloved, or in the Lord, or in whom, and by Christ, and by Him, and by Himself. And in this book, if you don't have it, I've got a lot of copies for it, for you to go through those scriptures that tells you who you are in Him, because that's the disposition, that's the placement of who you are in relation to Him. You're in Christ. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, Behold, or look, all things have become new. So you need to understand your placement in Christ. He says it's an arrangement of any sort which one wishes to be valid. 
And it bears with it the idea, and it's not to a full extent, so just understand that this is not a full picture. When we look at contracts between two people, it says, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do this. We enter into contracts all the time, right? We, it, it's like the store says, I will give you this vegetable if you give me money. That's a form of contract, right? Businesses get into contracts all the time. You will supply X and I will give you Z. And the reason why this isn't a full picture is because our contracts are fickle. Contract may be good, but maybe down the road I don't like it, so I'll get my lawyer involved and we'll find a way to get out of it. And that's where it breaks down because the covenant of the Lord is not based upon our contract law. It's actually based upon blood covenant contract law from the ancient times. And what that would be is, Tov, come here. I represent a tribe. Tof represents a tribe. And we're going to come into agreement, one with another, that I'm going to supply this. I'll bring everything that I have. You bring everything that you have. And we're going to work together as one. And what they would do is they would cut their hands. And then they would mingle the blood. And it would be a blood covenant that would be binding. Now, it's not just between me and him. Pastor Robin, come here. There would always be a third party involved who was stronger than both these parties. And there was a binding blood covenant so that if I break it, it means that him and him are coming to kill me. It's penalty on death. If he breaks it, him and me are going to go kill him. It was a binding agreement. Thank you, guys. You can sit down. It was a binding agreement that was not breakable. On pe- or on penalty of death. And saying, I bring everything that I have, you bring everything that you have, and we're going to stay that way because we've agreed on it. And when God made covenant with man, he said because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. <laughs> Why? Because he's not going to die. And he's not going to go back on his word. He's not going to break it. He said he's not like the Son of Man that he should lie or that he should change his mind. Has he not said it and so shall he not do? That's what the Word of God said. And so even when he made covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep. So that it wasn't based upon what Abraham could bring to the table. It was based upon what God brought to the table. And that's what we already said. It was finalized by Jesus. It's not about what we can do. It's about what he has already done for us in Christ Jesus. We have to understand that our marriages are not contracts. They are covenants. It says the two shall become one. And let no man separate them. And when there is that separation, you have to understand that there's a part of you that dies along with that separation that God never intended for us to have to deal with. And I completely understand. Divorces happen and the world is rough. Things happen. But that was not God's intention. He said, let a man leave his parents and become one with his wife. That they are together. It's a covenant, not a contract. We may sign contracts that we submit to the government, but in the eyes of God, in front of him, it is a covenant that he never meant to be broken. 
And so when God talks about you stand in the new covenant, it's something that he has finalized and cannot be broken. Not by your actions, and he never changes his mind. Amen? The second, the second way we can look at covenant here is that the second definition says the last disposition which one makes of his earthly possessions after his death, a testament or a will. And I think we can understand that. You've got stuff, you've got kids, and you're like, if something were to happen to me, I want them to be taken care of. I want them to get the house, them to get the bank account, them to get the car. And you divide your assets, and you go before the lawyer, and the lawyer ratifies it. And when it, if something were to happen to you, they say, this is for you. Now, if I've left something for TOEF in a will, it doesn't matter what Jessica thinks about it. It doesn't matter what Annie thinks about it. It doesn't matter what John thinks about it. It only matter what I intended. They carry out my wishes, not someone else's wishes. And the only one that can block the reception of that is you. The lawyer will say, your great aunt Myrtle left you the farm. And you can say, well, I, don't, I didn't know great aunt Myrtle that much. I don't believe that she would do that. That doesn't change the fact that it's yours. But it does change the fact that you didn't go take possession. And there's a lot of things that the Lord has left to us in his last will and testament that we've never showed up to receive that by covenant belong to us. Come on, I realize we're taking a little bit longer time on this than I was anticipating, but this is important. It does not matter what others think. It only matters what he thought. And so we have a, if you look at your Bible, one half says the New Testament, and one half says the Old Testament. Now, as life goes on, we know that situations change. Maybe it's like those rotten kids, I'm going to disown them. They're getting nothing from me. And so your first will may have been for them. But your second will doesn't have them. Which one gets enforced? The second. And I say that because too many Christians are living out of Old Testament mentalities and Old Testament commandments that are no longer valid under the New Covenant. Christians should be spending the majority of their time between Acts and Revelation. Because that is the New Covenant. That is the New Testament. And you can say, well, why didn't you include Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because that's what's called intertestament. It's the intertestament time where there was Jesus was finalizing things of the Old Testament and instituting the New. So you need to understand that not everything Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is applicable to you now. That's why context is important. Who's he talking to? And from what perspective is he talking to? You notice in John, John spends most of his time talking about what's coming. Well, guess what? What Jesus said was coming is here. Matthew spends a lot of time talking about what was. Mark He's all about action. He's the, the action gospel. You want to read exciting stories? You read Mark. Luke? Luke is very detailed. 
He's going to give you the genealogies. He's going to give you like the, 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 the more insight into who actually said that and why Jesus said that because he was detail-oriented. Each gospel has a different focus. So there's awesome things that are for us in the gospels, but you live in the New Testament from Acts to Revelation. Now, in things that are listed in our Old Testament, come on, we're just doing some simple teaching this morning. Things that are listed in the Old Testament, there are prophets that were prophesying about the time you live in. Isaiah did a lot of it. A lot of the Psalms of David are prophetic of Jesus, of what he would do and what you will stand in. So I am by no means am I saying there's nothing valuable in the Old Testament. That's not true, because as I said, we live in a better covenant on better promises, so you can read the Old Covenant, see their promises, and do a little jig and say, it's better than that. And so when we talk about a new covenant, there's a will that God has written. Now here's the question for you. When does a will get enforced? When the person dies. What did Jesus do for you? He died so that you might live. The will is in full enforcement so if there's a new covenant there was an old covenant why because we can ask questions like this with this verse Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever he doesn't change Jesus said if you've seen me you've seen the father the Bible says that He's the father of lights, and he gives every good and perfect gift in whom there is no shadow of change. So there's not a new covenant and an old covenant because God changed. The old covenant, the new covenant, and all the different segments of time are not because of God, but because of mankind. And it's God's merciful response to us. And so... Within our Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there are different, what we call theologically, dispensations. And just to put that in a simple word, it's segments of time. There are different segments of time in which God deals with mankind a certain way, not because he's changed, but because we have. And so you need to understand these different segments of time because when you read it in the Bible, is this for me in this sense or is this a picture type and shadow of what's to come? So in the few minutes we have left this morning, I want to look at the different dispensations of time. I told you I don't want to do a lot of preaching. I want to do some simple teaching so that we can let the roots go down deep so that you can go higher. The first segment of time we deal with in the Bible is... The garden segment. And this is a very important section. Read the first two chapters of Genesis because it shows you God's original intention for man. What was his intention for man? He created man in his own image and in his own likeness. And it was a cooperative agreement between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they said, let us make man. So it's not God was just saying it was a good idea and the Holy Spirit's like going, 
I'm not sure. No, it was, a, it was an agreement, an arrangement between them all. This is what we want man to be in our image and our likeness. And then God said, let us give them dominion over all the works of our hands. And so it wasn't just something they thought was a good idea. It's then what they did. They fashioned man in God's image and breathed the life, the breath of God into him. The man came alive and became a living spirit. And God said, here's the authority. You go name the animals. Here, I planted you a garden. What do you want the rest of the world to look like? Whatever you sow, you'll reap. And so that is God's original intention for mankind. Living in perfect uh, harmony with him. And given free choice to say, what do you want to do? Here's my authority. I don't want to fashion the world. You go ahead and do it. And that's a good place to start because it shows God's intention. But that segment of time ended with the fall of man. There was a change in man, not a change in God. God said, I've placed in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't know how long the garden segment lasted. But it was long enough that Eve either wasn't told or forgot or Adam was telling her wrong. Because when the enemy asked her, has God not said? Eve answered incorrectly based upon what God said. And so it says she was deceived and she ate. And then she gave to Adam who was with her. And so Adam was right there the whole time and didn't say, no, this is not what we're supposed to do. And he fell with her. And because of a consequence of the fall of man, this is where what we have is called the curse of the fall entered into the world. And so when you get to heaven, you can go ahead and be mad at Adam and Eve for being jerks and messing everything up for you. Because because of you, women, there's pain in childbirth. <laughs> because of Eve, you have to experience. Because of Adam and Eve, you now have to toil and work. You have to work the ground for it to produce. And there was thistles and thorns and weeds that began to appear that they didn't have in the garden. And it said that man would have to work by the sweat of his brow. And so next time you're out we're cutting wood and working hard and you're sweating, blame Adam. And so that's where the curse of the fall entered in. And it still exists on this earth until God finishes it at the end of time and says, no more. That's done away with. You've now been transformed into exact perfect harmony with him once again. And you don't have to experience that anymore. But there was also something that happened there that we can see God's mercy. Excuse <laughs> me. There's something else here that at this change in segment of time, we see that God already knew what was going to happen and had a plan. He says to the enemy in chapter 3 of Genesis in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So even at the fall of man and the change of this segment of time, God was already looking ahead to Jesus to fix it because Jesus took his foot and smush the devil's head. And so God, in his mercy, he knew 
what was going to happen, even though that wasn't his intention, he gave you free will still to make that choice. And it says Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So even before that garden segment, God knew I'm going to have to send Jesus to fix it because they're going to screw it up. And that's why the promises are not forced upon you. He says, what do you want? What will you receive? And so with the fall of man and the end of the garden age, we step into the age of conscience and human government. And this is basically men did what they wanted when they wanted, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, the mercy of God was still flowing through this whole sex segment of time as this segment of time is still existing for those who are in the world. Within this, God didn't stop talking, not to Adam and Eve. He didn't stop talking to Cain and Abel. Even after Cain murdered his brother, God was still having open discourse, trying to rectify the situation. Even before he murdered his brother, he was trying to stop it from happening before it happened. It didn't stop God's mercy from working. And God would work with individuals whose hearts were for him. We come along to Enoch, where Enoch and God were having such a great time together. God just said, Enoch, why don't you just come home with me and let's do this all the time. Come on. The fall of man and the entrance of sin didn't change God's desire for fellowship with his sons and daughters. So why do we think that our little actions change his mind today? Oh, I screwed up, so, you know, God can't, God doesn't want to see me. No! He says, come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy in your time of need, mercy and help. And so during this time, God was still dealing with individuals, and the world was doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, because they wanted to do it. Up until we hit Noah, where it says the, the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. But God still had a man of righteousness. His name was Noah. And so in spite of what they did, God was able to work with Noah and bring a rescue plan in so that the world didn't end there. And after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah and says, I will not flood the earth in this way ever again. So, the fall of man didn't change God's perspective at all, but it did, instead of working with mankind as a whole, he began to work with individuals whose hearts are with him. And then that brings us along to the Abrahamic covenant. So he's dealing with individuals all along until he hits a man named Abraham, and he says to him in Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out from your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. And I love verse 2. It says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Well, there's so much to unpack in that verse. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and he's talking to a man who doesn't have a son. He's making a promise of something that is actually feels like it's impossible for him. He's tried and failed, and now God says, I'm going to make something that was impossible possible for you. And he said, I will bless you. That word bless means I will empower you to increase. I will empower you to prosper. 
And then he says in the last one, and you shall be a blessing. Because that's what that blessing is for. It's not for you. You can judge the, the, the contents of someone's heart when you see what happens when they increase. Increase shouldn't make you go, oh, look how good I am. It should be like, who can I lift up and elevate because you are blessed to be a blessing. And he goes on, he says, I'll bless those who bless you. Those who line up with you, I will bless them. And I'll curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this blessing rested upon Abraham. It rested upon his son Isaac. It rested upon his, his, his grandson Jacob. And gets passed down for the Lord. Instead of working with an individual, he changed it to work with a family. Why? Because he's wanting to increase the, the sphere of blessing and influence. Whoo! He will take you and he will cause you to influence those around you, your family, your friends, your people in your workplace, and he will expand the sector of influence because the blessing continues. It continues on and on and on. Man, we're just running so much out of time and we barely even scratched the surface of this today. And he says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed and I will bless those who bless you. You know, that promise kept getting passed down, and when it hit Jacob, Jacob got into a lot of problems. <laughs> his, his life is like, no, that's not, not, not for me. You know, he was a deceiver, and God had to change his heart and change his nature. But he, he was working for his father-in-law, Laban, and he was planning on leaving. And Laban said this, I understand I have been blessed because you're here. Wherever you go, you should raise the culture of blessing. Come on. Whatever job you work should get busier just because you're there. Should begin to prosper just because you're there. Because the blessing rests upon the children of God. And Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, I have blessed you with all blessings in spiritual places, in heavenly places. He's blessed you with it all. Because you stand in a better covenant based upon better promises. So if Abraham was able to be blessed and, be, and bless those around you, how much more you now? Amen? And so that blessing rested upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, actually in verse thir chapter 13 it starts actually like this. I should have put it in there. And Abraham was very rich in silver and in gold and in livestock. So between the time in chapter 12 where the blessing was placed upon and Genesis 13 starting, the blessing had already been taking effect and Abraham was increasing. So much to the point that him and his nephew couldn't stay in the same land. Why? Because I'll bless those who bless you and those who are around you will be blessed just because you're there. And so Lot... And Abram had both increased so that they couldn't stay together, and so they split up. Lot chose the best land, or what he thought was the best land, and then Abraham took the rest. And God said, no, 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 Abraham. You look up, lift up your eyes. You look from this place northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. This is 
the first offshoot of the Abrahamic blessing. Abraham didn't have a kid. God said, I'm going to give you a kid. That kid's going to become a nation. And the old covenant is based around the nation of Israel. And so there's the natural side of this, where God said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. But it goes so much deeper than that. In chapter 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. This is the start of where God's about to cut covenant, make arrangement, an agreement with Abraham. And how does he start the blessing that is imparted? I am your shield. The Lord is your protection. There's protection available to you that you can receive. When you wake up in the morning and I say, Lord, I thank you that you are my shield, that no weapon formed against me will prosper. Why? Because the blessing of Abraham rests upon you. I am your shield, and he said, I'm also your exceedingly great reward. What did we say in Hebrews 11:6? That without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that comes to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so he brings Abraham outside, and he said, Look, now toward heaven, and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So your descendants shall be. Man, he says, Look up. Count them if you can. You have to understand that the blessing of the Lord is not measurable by your understanding. And if you try to measure it and contain it, you only serve to limit him in your life. Because how good you thought he was, he's gooder. How much of a sure source of supply he is, he's even surer. How much of a good healer he is, he's even better than what you could think. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. However big you think he is, he's bigger. So stop trying to put the limitations on him. And so he says to Abraham, look, count the stars if you can. And the thing was, he couldn't. Because when you think you got the number down, it's like, well, did I get that one? Did I get that one? And then you're just like, ah. And then you realize you turn this way, and you're like, oh, there's a whole bunch there. And then you realize on the other side of the planet, there's a whole other set that you haven't seen. And so God said that to Abraham, and Abraham's response is this, and we'll end here today. He believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And the Lord accounted to him righteousness. He believed the Lord. What is believing? It's the act of exercising faith. You said it. I believe it. What did God say? You're going to be a great nation. He didn't have a kid. He said, you said it. I believe it. Before the promise was fulfilled, he said, you said it. 
I believe it, so it is. So stop looking at what isn't done in your life and start looking at what the Word says is done. You are blessed because of Jesus. You are blessed beyond all that you could imagine. He is your shield and He is your exceedingly great reward in this land in which you live right now. And stop saying, well, I don't feel blessed. No, I am blessed, Lord. I believe that I am empowered to prosper. I will increase on the north and the south and the east and the west. I will increase in every direction because you said I'm blessed. I believe that I am kept. I am protected, Lord, because you are my shield. (laughs) I believe you are my exceedingly great reward. I don't wait to look whether it lines up. I go ahead and let my mouth line up with what the Word of God has said. Because what does faith sound like? It sounds like the Word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And that is the Word of faith in which we preach. Amen. Hallelujah. Pastor Robin. Mama Masuli Barundoko, Mashila Babakai, Basana Makuya Bashu, Miro Rio Sekabati. And yes, the abundance of my provision is great for you. As great as my love for you is my provision. Everything that you need in this life is found in me. And so, out of the abundance of your life, let your life be an example of receiving the provision that I have given and made ready for you to walk in, for you to lay hold of, for you to show forth how good I am to this world. I love the world. I am not willing that any should perish because I have sent my son for them. And so rise up in this hour and grab hold of what I have provided for you to walk in and show forth my glory in this world. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, glory, 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 glory. (laughs) I'm excited about this series. (laughs) Man. Get those roots down deep and so you can get to go higher. Go higher and higher and higher. Hallelujah. Well, it's offering time. And um, uh, because we're blessed to be a blessing, just like Abraham was blessed, and if the blessings of Abraham are fall upon us, which they do, then we are blessed to be a blessing. Amen? Amen. And so if for the offering, you can give online, wordchurch.ca backwards forward slash give and or envelope in the pew and there's a seat in front of you and so on and so forth. All right, I want to look at the scripture. This is the the Noah covenant um, and this is what God told him. While the earth remains, because you're here, you're still here, we're not on a different planet, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So since that time, that promise is yours. Even though it was given to Noah, the promise is still there. So if you sow, you'll reap. 
and you'll feel the cold and the heat, the winter, the summer, the end, and we have our day and night. Amen? God is faithful. God is faithful. Uh, you know, I love this time of the year because it's harvest time. And, um, uh, you know, I just, you know, just think about the farmers, just think about anyone who's planted a garden and they're reaping from the garden and so on. But so it's a reaping season. So we have parallels in the natural where we have the natural harvest, but there's also the spiritual harvest and the harvest that you have from when you've been, if you've been giving. And if you're faithful to give, you'll reap. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let me just pray over this offering. Father, thank you, Lord, that you meet all of our needs. Father, you are the God of more than enough. You are the God of abundance. And so, Father, I thank you that every need is met in this church and every need is met in the people here that give in Jesus name and everyone said amen. amen listen pastor Wendy and I would love to pray with you we're in the we're doing the we're with the care team today so if you need prayer or want prayer or just want us to agree with you something we'd be up here at the front and uh, please do amen amen <laughs>